and as Jem said, we're going to be continuing in our Philippians series. This is part five now, if you're keeping track. Um, and we'll be reading from Philippians chapter two, verse five onwards in a, in a little bit, if you'd like to find it in your Bibles. If not, I think it should appear on the screen. Um, and it's, it's good. So far this morning, we've had a lot of truth about who Jesus is. Uh, and I'm hoping to, to continue that in this um, message. These are some really famous verses. And um, some, of the, some of the scholars, some of the commentators believe that this is originally a hymn. Um, and I don't really want to get too much into whether it is or isn't. It's somewhat debated. Um, and, and people debate whether Paul wrote it originally or not. But I think what's important to know is Paul obviously agrees with it. He wrote it down. Um, and, and so we can definitely count it as Paul's. Um, and even if it wasn't originally a hymn, we have written so many hymns about these verses since then that I think, you know, it may as well be. Um, and, and, and I think it's really popular, um, partly because of that poetic language um, that, that I was talking about, but also because it, it paints such a rich picture of who Jesus is. We can learn so much about his nature and his character and, and declare that truth that we have been this morning um, from this passage. Uh, thankfully, no one, no one read my, my bit this morning, otherwise my thunder would have been stolen a little bit. Um, but we had lots of, lots of other great images of Jesus in, in the worship time. Um, and the other thing I wanted to say before I got started was that I'm going to be reading from um, the NIV translation this morning. Um, those of you who pay attention to this kind of thing might know that we often read from the ESV. Um, that's not because we think all other versions are bad. Um, you know, I've heard some people say that the NIV is the not inspired version. I don't think that that's true. Um, they're, they're both great translations. Um, but I think this morning that the, the, the passage we're looking at, um, the NIV language that it uses is really, uh, really quite helpful. Um, and actually, if I'm going to be honest, it, it will make my life easier um, in explaining what's happening um, if, we're using, if we're using this translation. I think, I think both translations are great. I use the ESV all the time. Um, but today we're using the NIV. It's nice, nice to have a change, I guess. Um, so I think that's enough of a, of a, of a preamble. Shall we, shall we look at what, what Paul has to say? Um, so we're looking at um, the book of the, uh, the, the letter to the Philippians, and we're reading from chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, and Paul says this. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What, what, a, what a great passage, what a great verse. You, you can really see how, how you would write a hymn out of that, right? Um, and, and, and Paul starts by um, saying that we should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He, he's um, continuing on from what he said in verses 1 to 4, um, where he's talking about humility and selflessness and how the Philippians are to live in their community. And, and he's saying that to do this, they should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He's using Jesus as an example of how to live a humble and selfless life. 
And then he gets into this example in, in verses 6 to, to, to uh, 11. That's where the, the hymn is, or, or maybe it isn't. Um, and he says that Jesus is in very nature God. He's, he's, he starts straight away by, by saying that Jesus is equal to God. We're, we're straight into some, some quite deep Trinitarian teaching. Paul is using, I think, very clear language. Jesus, in his very nature, is God. He's not just a bit like God. He doesn't just look like God. He doesn't just act kind of like God. He is actually God. And, and so in this text, we're introduced to two uh, distinguishable parts of the Trinity. We, we see God the Father um, towards the end of the passage, and, and we meet God the Son here. And, and we see, um, as, as we continue in verse 6, that he did not consider equality with God as something to use to his own advantage. And, and if you're reading the ESV, it says he didn't count it as something to be grasped. And, and, and to the Philippian readers, this is something that would have stood out to them. For, for their time and their culture, they're living um, in, a, in a city called Philippi in Greece. Um, they've spent a lot of time under Roman occupation. And so that, that Greek-Roman culture has a rich history of, of great pantheons of many, many gods, all of whom are, are fighting and squabbling over power and, and grasping at it and clinging to it and, and doing what they can to use that to their own advantage and to, to have um, control and power over the, over the universe. And, and that's reflected in the Roman leaders of the day. If you look at people like Caesar and if you look at the Roman Senate, they too are, are clinging to power and, and, and fixated on it and, and using it to their own advantage. And so Paul is setting Jesus up here in, in contrast to that culture. In, in contrast to, to what they might be used to, as, as one who is not grasping and, and using it to his own advantage, but as someone who is making himself nothing, it says in, in verse 7. Um, again, in ESV, it says he emptied himself. Um, and, and this verse of, of what does it mean for, for Jesus to empty himself or to make himself nothing is, is again, widely debated. Um, and, and I think it's helpful for us to try and put it into context of, of what's going on at this point in the passage. Paul is talking about the incarnation. He's talking about what happened when Jesus became human. And, and he goes on this, this, in this verse to, to say that he took on the very nature of a servant and he became, uh, he made himself in human likeness. Um, and, and so we've, we've got this context of Jesus becoming a man and, and that is the context which we can look at Jesus emptying himself. You know, we've already talked about Jesus being equal to God, and he doesn't lose any of that status by becoming man. He's not any less God because he chose to come down as a human. This is one of the, the great paradoxes, if you like, of, of Jesus and his character that, that is so hard for us to understand completely at times. It, it doesn't seem to quite fit into our human understanding of, of how, you know, how we think about things. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't necessarily conform to that, and, and that can be tricky. Um, and, and so to help us understand, I think it'd be helpful to look at um, some other bits of Paul's writing and, and see what's going on there um, to, to try and help us understand what, what's, um, what it means for Jesus to empty himself and what it means for him to retain his, his deity, his divine status, whilst becoming man. And, and I guess the first thing I would say is that in adding humanity to Jesus, that, that's almost taking away. That's almost the, the, the emptying that we see in the ESV. 
Um, if, you, if you read um, Galatians, Paul talks a lot about how if you've already received the gospel, if you've already received Jesus and salvation, then you can't add anything onto that. You can't add on these other Jewish traditions or, or whatever it might be. Um, you, you know, Jesus is everything. Jesus plus nothing is the answer to humanity. And, and so we've, we've got a similar thing here, that, that because Jesus is already so great, to try and add anything to him is, is almost to try and take away. And um, this, this, again, this is not because he's, he's made any less God, but because he's put on, he's added something, humanity, human weakness, um, which, which detracts. Um, and, and, in, and in 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing a letter, um, his second letter to the Corinthians, and he's using um, this language, jars of clay. Um, and, and that, I believe, is a, a metaphor for human weakness, quite, quite common in the ancient world and, and used a few times in the Bible. Um, and, and Paul's actually talking about something slightly different when he's talking about jars of clay. He, he's talking about treasure in jars of clay. Um, but, but I think it's helpful to apply that metaphor to, to our current context and, and see if it fits and see if it helps us to understand. So, so just as you might have treasure in, in jars of clay, you, you, we see here Jesus has put on human weakness. He's, he's almost veiled his glory in human flesh. And if you put your treasure in a jar of clay, as we all do, I know, uh, my, my jar of clay with, with my gold in it is kept in my living room, um, if, if you put your treasure in, in a jar of clay, it's not any less valuable. It's not any less precious because it's in a jar. And, and so Jesus is not any less God. He's not any less powerful. He's not any, any less glorious because he's put on human flesh. And as we move on into um, the rest of verse 7 and verse 8, we see that Jesus is not content to stop at putting on humanity. He, he comes in the form of a servant, um, or your translation might say slave. He takes on the very nature of a servant. And, and, and surely in, in first century um, Roman culture, this is the, the very lowest he could go. Right? The, the position of a, of a slave in this time was pretty much the bottom rung of the, the, the ladder, if you like. And so he, he, has, he has come so far from, from that position, it seems, of, of living in, in glory as, as part of the Trinity. He, he, the, the one who uh, was in the form of God has become a man. The one who was, uh, who was and is a king has, has, has come as a, as a slave. And, and then we go on to see that he, he went further than that still. He chooses to die. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death even death on a cross in, in verse 8. And again, this is, this is language that would have stood out to the Philippians. The, um, the, the culture and the context that they're in does not have the cross as a prominent symbol of their faith. You know, I think it's, it's easy for us to miss because it's so common. Uh, now in our, in our churches, it's, you know, it's printed on our Bibles. People wear a cross around their necks. Um, you often have them in churches. I don't think we have one, one here. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's a common symbol now. But that would not have been the case in, in first century um, Roman Philippi. The, the, the cross would, would have stood out because in, in this context, it is a dirty word. It's, it's not a symbol of their faith. It's a, it's a shameful, disgraceful death for, for the very lowest of Roman society. You know, the, the, the Romans re reserved the cross 
as a, as a barbaric execution for the very worst criminals, for, for the very... Um, for the very worst behaved of society, if you like, e and, and also for foreigners and slaves. That, that kind of indicates what, what the Romans thought of uh, criminals and, and foreigners and slaves. And, and so the words to, to the Philippians is obscene, and, and it's a scandalous reminder of, of the way that Jesus died, uh, of how he chose a criminal's death on a cross. Um, and, and, and what a contrast to, to verse 6, that is, um, what a contrast to him being in very nature God. I, um, I, I work as, as a software engineer, if you didn't know that, um, and, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about what it's like in, in software engineering culture, um, in, in dev culture, if you like. Um, so you might learn a few things this morning. Uh, and I do, I do have a point. I am going somewhere with this. Don't worry. I'm not just going to talk about myself for 20 minutes. Um, maybe afterwards. Um, and and in, in software engineering culture, you, you form communities of people. I think that's fairly, fairly normal with, with a shared interest. Um, and, and it's inevitable, I think, when you've got a, a culture and a community with a shared interest that, that some people emerge as celebrities. You know, we've, we've got that in churches, right? We've got I'm sure there are a handful of names that I could reel off of famous worship leaders or famous um, megachurch pastors that, that we would all know and, and, and know that one, you know, th th those handful of celebrities. Um, and it's, it's the same is true in, in software engineering. You've got a community of people who use the same programming language or, or, or tools or whatever it is. Um, and, and someone is going to be either like particularly gifted at using those tools or maybe they made those tools or maybe they, they, they help maintain them, whatever it is. And, and they emerge um, in, into fame, you know, fairly minor fame, I guess, but fame, fame all the same. Um, and they get invited to talk at big tech conferences, and, and they write, in, write insightful blog posts, and we talk about them all the next day at work. Um, and, and, it, and it's great. Um, but, but these people need day jobs. And, and, and so they, they work in normal software companies, and, and I have I am the, the great pleasure and privilege to work with a few big names. I'm not going to uh, brag too much, um, but I work, I work with some of the big names um, in my little software community. My, my company has, has, has approached these people and said, would you, would you come and work with us? Um, and, and so you, you find yourself having conversations with people where they're talking about this, this person. We're, we're going to call this guy Michael. That's not his real name. Um, and you have a conversation, and, and, and they'll say, oh, did you hear that Michael is going to come and, and, and work for us? He's, he's starting on Monday. You're like, what? The Michael. Mike, Michael, the one who made the pajamas framework. Again, like not not the real name, but it probably could be. I don't know if I, I don't know if Rob's not Rob's not here, but um, there are, there are lots of silly names. Um, de developers are not the best at naming things. Um, so pajamas framework is a pretty realistic name. Um, and 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 you're talking about Michael joining, and and you're having you're kind of thinking about what that might look like, what team he might be on, um, and and you'll find that. After a while of them working there, you'll, you'll be facing a problem as a team and, and you can't get your head around it. And you're like, oh, if, if only we could have Michael just to come and work with us for a few days. Um, and so you'll chat to Michael and, and, and you'll basically say, would you, would you come and work with my team for, for two to three days? If, if we had your time, we could, we could smash this and, and, and it'd be done. Um, and and you're, asking, you're asking him, in a sense, to, to humble himself for, for three days and, and even join your Zoom calls maybe join your Slack conversations. 
um, and, and be obedient to, to the constraints of your, your project and obedient to your team leader for, for you know, two to three days. And, and this is a, a woefully inadequate comparison, I realize. Because for Michael, it costs him very little. His, his, his big talk that he's preparing in a few weeks' time, he's going to have to put that off for two to three days in the preparation just to spend some time. But, you know, he's still getting paid. Um, it's, it's, it's not that much of a sacrifice for him. But for Jesus, when he came and, and died upon the cross and he chose that, that terrible, terrible death, it cost him so much. For, for two to three days, he, he, he knew death. He knew separation from his father. And, and so there, there is no real comparison, I guess, is the, tr is the point I'm trying to make. There, there is no, if, if I sat for a week just trying to think of a single adequate comparison, I don't think I'd come up with one. There, there, there is no true comparison for, for all that Christ gave on, on that cross, all that, all, all that it cost him. And, and yet this was his great plan for the incarnation from the very beginning. This is the whole reason that he emptied himself in the first place, was to come and die and, and willfully choose that, that death on a cross as a sign of his humility, as a sign of his obedience to the will of the Father. And, and I think it's significant that in this passage, there's no mention of us. Paul is, is so fixated on talking about Jesus in, in this text. If you look at um, some other bits of Paul's writings, um, in, in Galatians in particular, um, but, but elsewhere as well. Paul, Paul, when he's talking about the cross, he often talks about its redemptive benefit for us. He often talks about how the, how the cross um, and the crucifixion is, is for us and for our uh, benefit, that we might be saved. And, and that is, of course, true. But, but Paul is, is just completely focused on, on Jesus here. And, and you'll see that in the rest of the passage as well. So, so as we focus, uh, sorry, as we move on to, to the second part and, and we look at what's happening there, it, it says that therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And, and though the, the, the shift here, it goes from talking about what Jesus is doing and what he's done to, to what um, God the Father is doing and what God the Father has done, the, the focus is still on Jesus. The focus is, is still on him uh, and, and, and the worship of him. And, and the word therefore quite simply means that because of all that Jesus did, because of his obedience to the Father, the Father chooses um, to, to exalt him. And, and his, there's, there's almost a reversal, right? We, we see him in very nature, God, right at the beginning. And then at the end of verse 8, we, we have him dying on the cross. And then, and then the Father reveals again his, his divine status. He, he exalts him to, to vindicate him, to, to demonstrate his approval for what he's, what he's done and his obedience, and, and to reveal and reaffirm his divine status. And, and he gives him the name Lord, um, again, in a clear parallel to, to the Philippian readers of, of Caesar, who they would have called Lord, many of them. Um, and, and it would have been clear to them in, in this cult of imperialism that they're, they're so used to, um, or, or what, what Paul's getting at here, that, that Jesus is the Lord. He's not just a Lord. He's not just a God of, of a pantheon of many, many gods. Jesus is the Lord, far greater than Caesar, the Lord above all. And, and, and this ultimately leads to the worship of Jesus, not, not just in the church, you'll notice, but, but in all of creation. 
And, and so when we worship as we have done this morning, as, as great as that has been, it is just a glimpse of what is to come uh, in, in the universal worship of our Lord Jesus on that great day. Where, where all creation gathers together and, and confesses that he is Lord and, and bows down to him. And, and you'll notice that even at the very end of this passage, um, when, when Jesus is now the recipient of, of the universal worship of creation, everyone is, is bowing down to him and, and, and confessing his sovereignty. Verse 11 ends by saying that it is, uh, it says, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Nothing Jesus has done is for himself. Nothing that Jesus did, even as the recipient of, of the universal worship of creation, is for him. It is for the glory of the Father, not for Jesus directly. And, and Jesus, Jesus reflects the nature of the Father. And, and, and so when, when we worship him, we are worshiping the Father and glorifying the Father and, and rem reminding ourselves of his self-giving love that, that Jesus so perfectly reflects in this passage. And, and so the Father is glorified through the obedience of the Son and, and the worship of the Son. Um, and, and we see in this, in this passage and in Jesus himself uh, the final revelation of the true nature of our living God. And I, I think this is a, a wonderful conclusion, verses 9 to 11, of, of, of such a beautiful picture um, of Jesus. And it's such a beautiful um, image of, of the Father's unending love, his selfless love for, for all of his children. And, and it, as I said, it's reflected so perfectly in Jesus. Derek spoke to us uh, a few weeks ago um, from the beginning of chapter 2. As, as I said earlier, we were, we were talking about selflessness, selflessness and humility. And, and Paul was really teaching the Philippians how to live their lives. Um, and, and we'll go on in the rest of this chapter and in the rest of the, the letter to the Philippians to see how Paul continues to teach the Philippians how to live their lives. And, and he uses um, this passage as an example for them. He points to Christ's mindset for, for the Philippians to follow and for us to follow. And he emphasizes the selflessness and the humility of Jesus in, in the incarnation and in the crucifixion. And, and so we, we ourselves, as, as we look at this text, we ourselves must be, must be captivated by the, the beauty and the majesty of Christ. And, and as we, we try and understand um, all that he has done, and if, uh, if we truly allow ourselves to be captured by him, our hearts and our lives must be transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and if we do that, we will too bring further glory to God. And I think as, as we continue um, in our, in our, in our um, Philippian series, we'll, we'll see that there is much more teaching to come. But as I said earlier, in this passage, Paul is so evidently focused on Jesus. And I think we miss out on, on all that there is for us if we get lost in, in trying to see what, what he's teaching us about how to live. Now, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on what he has done. And, and so I, th I would encourage us to see in this passage, I'm not sure if we'll have time to sing a song, but that's okay. Uh, I'd encourage us to see um, in this passage um, the revelation of our Lord Jesus. 
the revelation of who he is and what he has done, the revelation of the very nature of our loving father. And we see revealed to us the, the relationship between two parts of the Trinity. We see how the father seeks to, to love the son and exalt the son. We see how the son is, is obedient to the father and seeks to further his glory. And we get a glimpse, as I said, of all of creation joining together in, in worship of Jesus. And we can look forward to, to joining with all creation and all of heaven and all of earth and all of under the earth in the universal worship of Jesus Christ. He is the one who had everything and chose nothing. He is the one who, who is a king and, and yet chose to come in the form of a slave. And he is the one who spoke life into all creation and yet willingly chose death for himself. That is the God that we worship. That is the God that we have been worshiping this morning, that Jesus Christ who would give everything for the glory of God the Father.